have this thing in ecology called shifting baselines where you know, what you grew up with as a kid, you kind of think that's the healthy normal and then you see things changing over your lifetime and you're like, oh, when I was a kid it was so much better. There was more birds, there was frogs. But that's completely different to what your parents grew up with and we're losing this diversity even within my lifetime in most places in Australia. We recently chatted on Dirty Linen to Pippa James from Grains about their new John Reed Fellowship, funding that goes towards meaningful projects in the world of grain in honour of Redbeard Bakery founder and sourdough pioneer John Reed. John was also a guest on the podcast not long before he died of a brain tumour. The John Reed Fellowship has been split between two people, Shingi Nyabonda, also a Dirty Linen, Linen alumni, and today's guest, Jacob Birch. Jacob is a Gamilaro man who has built his academic career on exploring the promise of native grain. I'm really honoured to have him join us today to talk about reawakening First Nations foodways. Jacob, how's it going? Hey, yeah, I'm, a, yeah, I'm good considering everything. Yeah. Yeah, well, there is a lot of everything to consider. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to know where to start, but um, I'd love to hear, I would love to hear anything that you want to say, but do you want to tell us about the work that you're so passionate about? Yeah, um, yeah, and just acknowledging Grains and the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance and everybody who contributed towards that scholarship or that, that grant um the john reed fellowship or whatever it's called um yeah like I, I met john in the very early conversations that we started having around you know reigniting this native grain food system um yeah so he was involved in those really early conversations and i was really looking forward to catching up with him and that never happened unfortunately because like he was such a passionate person and so well articulated and and really visionary with it so yeah but really honored to get that um and and sort of keep his vision alive um yeah so i guess i'm doing a lot of different things and um like yeah there's that academic stuff um you know like that's got its own limitations and I think like the real focus now is stepping into um, that self-determination space through um, enterprise development and through nation building activities. So that's the main focus. And which grains are you working with, Jacob? Um, So for Gamilaroi Mob, we've got two really important species like you know there's i think over 1100 native species of grass so there's so many different um grasses that you could work with across the across the country like grasses in the dunes in the um on the side of the beach right through to the desert up into you know like alpine regions up into the tropics so there's a whole variety of grasses, but I'm really focused on using the grains that were important culturally to Gamilaroi people, um, and that's your native millet, gully, and your, your Mitchell grass, which is Gunalay. <coughs> and, and they kind of got two different kind of um, 
contexts in, in using them as well. Like, you know, one's more of a special product and the other one's kind of your daily kind of product. And are you able to talk about the cultural importance of the grains? Um, so we we're still in the process of bringing all of that knowledge back. Um, obviously, like in our region, compared to some other sort of more remote communities, like colonisation was pretty decimating because it's it's really rich agricultural country and and because it was such rich grassland too. You no. Know, when the first sort of settlers and colonists come through, um, it was really prized as grazing country. So, you know, you just had this like, like I'm reading a, a, an account from the first um, female child, European female child to enter into that northern Gamilaroi country. So, you know, very, very early days of colonising that country and, and she just notes like how fervent that land grab was. It was like a gold rush, but but a, a rush of land, like claiming land for for grazing enterprises. <clears throat> so really rapid dispossession, um, and all those things that come with with that. So we lost a lot of knowledge, but um, yeah, I guess just a sort of little bit of that culture behind it. It. So I live on the Sunshine Coast, Cubby Cubby Country, and and Jinnaburra Country, and this is big bunya nut story here. A lot of people know the bunya nut as a um, like a seasonal or, or not even every year, but like every three years, there's like a really big harvest of bunya nut, um, and that used to support like a congregation of many many different communities from you know sometimes hundreds of kilometres away. Like the Milleroy people used to walk from, you know, southwest Queensland, northwest New South Wales all the way into um, the Bunya Mountains to participate in these gatherings all around that food. You know, you've got this abundance of food and that supports um, these gatherings of people because you you imagine like you have hundreds and, and often thousands of people coming from all around gathering you know, how are you going to feed all of those people? You can't just go out and hunt kangaroo every day. You'll decimate the population of kangaroos. So you, you, these times of um, food abundance were times to come and gather together. And we had a, our own, like, time of abundance, and that was the native grain harvest. So that's why it's really culturally – one of the reasons it's really culturally important. And that, oh, there's many, many more reasons – <clears throat> that I, I wouldn't go into because that's sort of not my story to share. But but that cultural gathering stuff, you know, that's really interesting and, and really exciting that that we had our own food system of abundance that would activate, you know, not not even every year, every when the when the conditions were right. Yeah, it's really beautiful to think about that. Um, but yeah. I guess thinking about it now, and as you say, like the violence of colonisation on those on those very lands is, um, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of layers to to that discovery. Uh, what what in in what ways was this grain consumed? Um, so sometimes you could just ground it into a paste, like just you know some of the grain, a bit of water, grounded into a paste, and they would eat it 
raw straight up like that. Um, other times it would be cooked, you know, in like the earthen ovens or co- cooked in the coals like a damper. Um, there's there's other knowledge out there on how to prepare, um, you know, products that would be more resemblant of a of a loaf of bread. Um, you know that that was mixing different products into the flour could achieve that same kind of result as a as a nice risen loaf of bread. Yeah, so yeah, it was raw or cooked. And um, Jacob, how did you come to start looking at this? You know, as as an academic, um, was did the academic side of it come first? Was it something that you were always interested in? Was it something that came through through family or family stories? Um, oh, you know, you could go back and back and back, um, but you know, like just just being out in the sort of garden a lot as a as a kid, like parents sort of making you do the work out in the garden and then getting an interest for for that kind of stuff and then moved into an interest in permaculture um but was always kind of asking that question you know how how can permaculture feed the world because we you know cereals are such an important part of the global diet and we don't really talk about how cereals and cropping fits into that permaculture model um and then got did a environmental science degree, marine science degree, and learned about land degradation in Australia. <clears throat> so, you know, looking at just how much country we're losing to things like salination, um, acidity, erosion. You know, like soil salinity is consuming like millions of acres of cropping country and viable country. Like, I think by twenty fifty. The figures are astounding. You know, millions and millions of acres lost to salinity. I was like, well, you know, some surely there's something we can do about that. And I started looking at native grasses as a soil remediation because, like I said, we get grasses that grow in sand dunes, and and one of those species is kangaroo grass. Like so kangaroo grass grows in the headlands, and you find it in sand dunes sometimes. It's it's obviously salt tolerant and really resilient so why don't we plant something like kangaroo grass in these saline affected parts of australia you you remediate the country and you can get an outcome like an economic outcome if you're grazing cattle or sheep in a sustainable way obviously and then from that just researching that um yeah started learning about using our native grasses as a food source <clears throat> and then I went and asked my grandmother and I'm like did you know did our ancestors harvest grass grain and and eat it did they you know, use it like flour and she's like oh yeah I was like well why didn't anybody tell me this it's the first time I'm hearing about it and um just from that the the passion for it has just grown uh that's really that's so, that's so striking just to think about that like that 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 journey through I guess white academia back to your grandmother and just like this other way of um, yeah seeing and feeling and, and living from the land that's yeah pretty profound yeah and <clears throat> I don't know like it just it makes sense for so many reasons like it 
the the what we can achieve through this uh, and and why i'm saying like moving into that enterprise development and that nation building work is because we have a real opportunity with this industry like this re-emerging industry like it's more than just land remediation or bringing back a food system we can get a really holistic set of outcomes out of this if we do it right and, and that's the main thing is is getting it right from the start and not letting this be appropriated like every other bush food industry in australia like macadamia is a really good example everybody uses but you know like we don't acknowledge the seafood industry as a bush food industry um no tea tree is another one that's been taken lemon myrtle everything kakadu plum even um finger lime we're losing all of these bush food industries that are opportunities to shift paradigms for indigenous communities we just have to do it right and and i don't think anybody's going to do it for us so we have to do it ourselves and that's setting up those governance structures um so that we can lead this space on our own terms Wow, that's yeah, that's so powerful. Um, I mean, we know, yeah, we've talked before on this podcast about you know the sad fact that it's only between one and two percent of um, the money that goes into indigenous foods goes back to um, yeah First Nations people. It's just really shocking. Um, but it's really interesting to me that you know rather than I suppose try to yeah change change that with those industries that are already established that you start this this new one. It's yeah, it's really pretty exciting and powerful um i mean what's it like it, maybe i don't know if this is the right way to do it but let's start at the end like what's your when you when it's done right like what's your vision of this nation building work like what is it what does it look like what does success look like um yeah i think i think my idea of success like i'm not sort of too focused on um what that would look like because uh, I f- really want to co-design that with community. Like, like for me, it would be seeing like farms, like land, decent land um, under ownership of our mob and, and being utilised um, with like traditional, traditional methods and, 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 and producing traditional sort of food, Foods like bringing back those those ways of managing country and and getting sort of multiple enterprises operating out of those. So, so there's so many opportunities with you know sustainable forestry and and medicines and foods. Um, it it's it's not just the the grains. It, it is there's a whole myriad of different products like food fiber medicine that we can we can be exploring but i think like um sort of one of those guiding visions is just bringing back that health and vibrant diversity to to our landscapes like you know we have this thing in ecology called shifting baselines where you know what you grew up with as a kid you kind of think that's the healthy normal and then you see things changing over your lifetime and you're like, oh, when I was a kid, it was so much better. There was more birds, there was frogs, but that's completely different to what your parents grew up with. And and anyway, like we're 
we're losing this diversity even within my lifetime and it at in in most places in Australia. But you know, like so hard to catch a fish in the river now. The rivers are just wrecked. Like, you know, it, there's no there's no like um little finches around anymore. I use that as a big analogy, um, the finches and the Christmas beetle. You because know, the Christmas that's the, that's that shifting baseline. When we were kids, you know, you'd have Christmas beetles every year. But my kids, they won't know anything about having a Christmas beetle every every year at Christmas because they've never had it. And then they'll lose something and they'll be like, "Oh, when I was a kid, we had this." But um, yeah, so I want to bring back that. Just rambling a bit here, but I want to bring back that vibrant diversity within our landscape, like providing economic opportunities for people but also getting those environmental outcomes and i think you know it's all it's all experimental at this stage could work it might not but i think we need to try and it's yeah i guess like mono cropping has been one of the disasters for for land i mean in all kinds of places around the world like is so when you talk about about that are you talking about let's say like you'll have an a native grass, um, I don't know if plantation's the right word, but an area where you're, you know, keeping an eye on the grasses and sowing from there, but there would be lots of other plants that are, that are interplanted among it. Is, is that what you're talking about? Um, I think it's knowing what belongs where. Um, so, so there would be certain sort of, it might be the soil, um, it could be the elevation, it could be the topography of the country will sort of tell you what can go where and and knowing what's going to be sustainable within your system too like i'm i'm all for putting a crop of some kind of conventional cereal in for example like a crop of wheat as long as it's done properly and i've been speaking to farmers who who do cropping but just through changing their methods, like they're getting really, really good um, environmental outcomes. You know, like rivers are running clear again just by changing their their practices. Like, and I think that's it's it's not the the grains themselves, the cereals like wheat, and that it's it's how it's done, and. It's this like sort of system we live in, like, and I say the farmers are between a rock and a hard place where, <clears throat> you know, it's it's it always comes down to the bottom line, and they do, you know, they they don't do the best practices because they gotta, you know, pay the bills, I guess. But it's also that system we live in where that's that's what we demand, like. I feel like that's what we've always demanded in Australia is is economic growth, using agriculture as a tool for economic prosperity. And just reading about recently, you know, in the 1820s when they set up the Australian Agricultural Company, like they were actually, there was uh, people in that colonial administration who were advocating for more sort of decentralised, small-scale, family-owned um, farms, you know, like replicating that 
like actual authentic European style. If you travel particularly continental Europe and, and places like Italy, you'll see like this agricultural diversity and this small-scale agriculture. And, um, we, we nearly had that in Australia, but instead it was um, – they just – ended up going with this large-scale agriculture and and setting up entities like AA Co founded by, you know, 400 of the wealthiest and well-connected people in the British Empire. And that seems like the system we've followed ever since is like, <clears throat> you know, the the top tier of society set the narrative and, and sort of set the policy and the agenda. I don't know. Well, you, you think about, about that and that sounds like a very hands-off um, way of thinking about it. And then you think about you talking about finches or, or beetles. It's just, a, it's, a very, it's just a very different, I guess, set of priorities that you're, that you're looking at when you make decisions. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a way of, yeah, there needs to be a lot of rethinking of the way, like, rethinking about land. Mm. Yeah, and no, I think like at least trying to bring back these traditional knowledges on how to look at land and how to work with land in in a more sort of reciprocal kind of relationship and, and in a more relational kind of way. Like I think that's that's possibly the answer that we're looking for, like bringing back our knowledge systems. And Jacob, going back to salinity, um, I don't know that much about agriculture and how soil can change. Like, can you just explain how grasses could improve the soil and reduce salinity? Um, yeah, I'm not a soil expert. I'm not really an expert in anything, but um, I. So we we have like fairly shallow water tables um, in, in certain areas. And I think I think the worst saline-affected areas are probably like South Australia and WA. And, and these, may, these may, even, may, may even be like your old, like inland sea areas where you have um, these water tables sort of not too deep under the soil that have got a lot of salt in them. So like, the traditionally trees um, would have been in the landscape and deep-rooted perennial grasses and that would have kept the water table deeper, just those deep root systems um, hot, sucking the water out of the landscape because, you know, eucalyptus is really, really good at sucking water out of the landscape and there's a lot of countries overseas where eucalyptus has been introduced and they're a real problem. Um, causing um, you know, really dry conditions and drought and and all the rest, but they're really effective at sucking sucking that water out and and keeping the water table low. But when you denude the landscape of anything long lived, deep rooted, the water tables just rise up, and as that water rises, it brings the salt with it, and then you get salt in the soils and. You can't really grow anything. So a lot of our native grasses, particularly in those sort of soils, those sandier soils, their root systems will go really, really deep 
and and these are long long lived perennials like our medjool grass we we know that it lives for at least 50 years but we don't really know how long they live because nobody's ever really studied it but at least 50 years and that's because people have observed the same tussock of grass for five de- five decades just like this one tussock of grass is just living through all these seasons of boom and bust, drought, flood, fire, just persisting through all of that. Um, so that's that's what I think. Like, yeah, we, we have these deep roots and these, you know, multi-layered root systems that it's all providing like a multiple set of services, whether it's keeping that water table down, filtering water, providing habitat for your um, invertebrates that live in the soil and your, your burrowing animals, um, your microbiology, your, your cycling of your minerals and elements all through the soil. So there's some multitude of benefits. Yeah, amazing. Um, and so do you, do you have like crop, commercially viable crops at this point? Like is that something that you've been working on or is that still in the planning stages? That's that's just in the planning. Like, you know, and it, again, I think we need to set our structures in place to be able to get that sort of support. Now, I, I've got I've got support to set up my own sort of individual private business sort of crop somewhere. But, um, yeah, I, I think if we can set up our own sort of nation representative body for our nation, then we can start to look at then getting into growing our own crops but you know you need capital to be able to go and put the seed in the ground like you need to be able to buy the seed because because we don't have access to country because like i said like that like Gamilaroi country just got taken up um and it's, it's it's really prohibitive to try to get land out there so we're gonna have to rely on like probably farmers to grow it for us um then we'll probably have to buy the seed and and then get that seed in the ground Uh, so it's a bit of a process um because these grasses are also you know our local varieties they would be endangered as kind of i've run some community engagement workshops and and people sort of equate the the loss of of you know our, our people and our genetics too like you know the just the way you know that two percent of the population in australia that's probably that's probably all that remains of our original populations is is two percent after the you know all the impacts so there's like this correlation with the loss of the people and the loss of the of the grasses but but there's now this sort of conscious movement towards bringing them back. Um, but yeah, it's 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 multi-layered and, and complex. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, who who do you have on this journey with you, Jacob? You know, are there a lot of people that are working alongside you in this space, or does it does it feel like solitary work at times? Um, <clears throat> there's people doing stuff. Um, but but trying to think about this bigger 
bigger thing. Like it feels like I am sort of having to drive a lot of that myself. And that's, you know, people, I guess that's just because I'm the most passionate one about it and, and everybody else has got their own things going on. But, um, you know, like trying to build up a network of of Gamilaroi people to at least sort of be the founding kind of um, members and, and stakeholders within this this entity. Um, yeah, but it, yeah, I don't have any sort of structures around me for, for support. Uh, so when you get out there and try to advocate for our rights in this space against like massive multinationals and massive institutions, it, it does feel quite isolating and, and just even sort of dealing with conflict um you know like feeling really abandoned by by entities that should have been there to support so it does at times feel quite isolating yeah it sounds it sounds pretty challenging and draining um is it what's it like going between you know the, your academic career and and things like thinking about you know the, the finches and the beetles and the, the deep roots of, of these grasses I mean is that is that um, is it about trying to bring the worlds together or is it about um, I don't know like reframing the way that, that academia um, approaches these topics um, yeah honestly uh, uh, it in academia, I'm really just a research assistant at the moment. Like, and there's always that sort of, oh, do I do a PhD? Because I, I don't have a doctorate. I, I only ever did honours. Um, a lot of people think I've, I'm a doctor in this space, but I know I'm not. I'm just that's why I said I'm not an expert in on this stuff. Um, but like, I'm not alone in this. A lot of a lot of people are becoming disillusioned with academia. Um, you know, like, I think there was a real kind of like movement and a moment where Indigenous people were getting into academia, uh, trying to change the system from the inside and they're finding that they cannot do it. it it's just too colonial in its structures and it's it's um, not a safe place to be. There's like... Um, yeah, it, it, a lot of people are leaving, a lot of people who have been in there who are, who are doing really amazing things uh, are leaving leaving the institutions, um, people who are doing their PhDs dropping out, yeah, no, you know. Then there's some high-profile people too, like the dean of um, one of the sandstone institutions recently left, like, yeah, I feel like it, it's kind of it was an experiment that's that's failed, um, and yeah, like yeah. So it is. It's really, really difficult to work within that space and and be bound by it, and you know, like be censored within that space. You know, like. Even even just recently, trying to advocate for students and being censored. So, it's a really difficult space to work within. Yeah, it sounds really challenging. Um, 
Jacob, I know you've been on on a trip around the world recently. I mean, have you seen examples of the kind of work that you're trying to do uh, a, a bit further along the path elsewhere? I mean, are there are there good examples of um, First Nations foodways that you can point to or, or get inspiration and strength from? Yeah. Um, yeah, I just went to a conference in Vancouver and I did a quick stopover to visit the Anishinaabe people um, around White Earth Reservation. So it's like the Great Lakes region of Minnesota. And, you know, they've got the wild rice there. They've got the rice that grows on the water. Um, Monoman, they call it. Um, and they've kept that food system alive, you know, despite all the similar kind of um, impacts that we've had in Australia, they've managed to keep that alive, which is really inspirational in itself. Um, the big, the big, big trip is next year, but but even just this this brief one I went on um, a couple of weeks ago, I only got back a couple of weeks ago. I was there for a week in Minnesota, and um, yes, yeah, it's, it's it's really really cool what they're doing there. So I was staying with. Uh, um, a lady called Winona Leduc. She's a bit of a matriarch in that food sovereignty movement. Um, similar kind of, I don't know, academic but professional kind of background, I think, as an economist or something. And um, just a really big advocate and activist. And she, she's got, she's been involved in a lot of different entities and then own private things. And, you know, they're asserting sovereignty in that energy space, um, food, you know, they got, she herself has three farms and they're exploring all different kinds of crops like hemp, uh, the heritage corn, the heritage squash, heritage beans. Uh, so that's that, that's like the people who did the three sisters sort of planning, the beans, squash and corn. Um, uh, but also taking charge of that wild rice industry where they they do the processing so so in Australia like we don't have the land to access the grains to to be able to manage that part of the food system but we can take control once it leaves the farm gate and take and be involved in that processing part of it and then determining what the products use for from that point um, whereas they they have that processing part but they also have the front end of it as well, which is the harvesting. So, because it grows on all the lakes there, and they got like ten thousand lakes out there, it's incredible. Um, you know, I think they say I don't know if it's true, but they say they have one fifth of the world's fresh water out there in the Great Lakes region of the United States and Canada, which is incredible. And and um, you no, know, they have to work really hard to protect those resources too, like whether it's from the, the coal sand pipelines they were trying to put through and now they're trying to um, fight against lithium mining, you know, because everybody wants electric cars now but they don't sort of think about, well, where's all the materials come from? It comes from like these last wild places, these refuges of usually Indigenous peoples and biodiversity and, and places where we get our fresh water. Um, so they've got to fight really hard to maintain these resources. Um, but they go out there and they harvest it and then, you know, a morning's worth of work, they can get a few hundred bucks easily. 
they sell that to the processor, they process it up and then they package it, brand it, and then they sell it off. So, you know, they got control of that whole food system, that traditional food system, but then also like the more contemporary ones too, like I was saying, the hemp, um, you know, doing goats and stuff like that. That's just, it's really cool. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it, it, it was amazing. It's only a week, but it was just like so much in one week. Incredible. Yeah, it sounds sounds really inspiring. And, you know, as you were speaking about before, like there's a lot of diverse land use, which sounds like it would, yeah, promote the health of those environments. Um, yeah, although in the face of those pressures that you also speak about um i mean does that give you energy for the tasks you've set for yourself back here yeah but also like when you see people like winona and just like these force of energy where it's like you know someone like that they can achieve those kinds of things i'm like oh God, I'm I'm exhausted just being around this person because, and, and and she's like, oh, she's a lot older than me too. So yeah, it, it's inspiring. But I'm also like, oh, geez, do I have that kind of energy? Um, yeah, but I, I think I think for me, like, what I want to do is use these examples to inspire my own community to say, like, it is possible and. And these people are achieving it and they've had similar experiences and and forming these like relationships of learning and sharing and standing in solidarity together. Just Yeah, like so I think I think it's um yeah, bringing bringing more people into it to spread the load. So and, and build the movement. Yeah, it sounds very necessary and essential and, and worthwhile. Jacob, can you describe for us a place where there is a landscape in harmony and, you know, what it looks like and what it feels like to be there on, on Gamilaro country? Um, it would have to just be – I would have to try to envision that because – it doesn't exist in reality at the moment and and it hasn't existed in my lifetime. So I'll be dreaming dreaming it into existence. We won't be speaking to it from experience because it's just been so decimated. But um, from a plant's perspective, like, hey, we're, we're really fortunate in that we have so much medicine on our country, like so many different medicine plants. Um, and those those plants are not just medicine because of their, you know, bioactive components, but also like on a spiritual level almost, like they, yeah, they're, they're kind of like sharing something if you allow yourself to sort of you know, connect, and I guess especially a, a lot of women too really connect with the plants. But it'd be, you know, seeing all of these like really um, b- 
beautiful sort of reciprocal relationships between people and plants out there on country and and seeing like a real diverse assemblage of grasses within the landscape, you know, like seeing seeing the little grassland birds kind of like darting in and out of the grasses. You, you don't see that much anymore, but you, know, you get all these finches and wrens and robins sort of dancing through the grass and um, out on that sort of northern part of Gamilaroi country is wombat country, but we don't really have wombats out there anymore. It would be seeing the return of the wombat and seeing like all of our, you know, the return of um, <clears throat> like your, your big mobs, uh, emu and your red kangaroo, um, your plains turkey, which nearly got wiped out. Um, be be seeing uh, the return of all your sort of, you know, what I've seen in Minnesota, which I hadn't seen for, for so long, was the place was alive with insects. Like, just the diversity of insects. Like, I remember as a kid, you'd have to watch out walking through a garden because you'd get spiders or, or some kind of insect. And now it's not so much. But there it was just, it was buzzing and it was alive. And I'd love to see that again out there. You know, this, this, landscape that was alive that you can feel the energy within it um that's not sort of dead and and denuded and covered in chemicals and synthetic fertilizers where the rivers are all 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 stagnant and you know like it'd be yeah i don't know like um it's hard to kind of explain, I guess, without sitting down and really envisioning it. Oh, you've done an amazing job um, just sketching it out. It's, um, it sounds like a very rich place and, yeah, very special place. It's full of, yeah, opportunities and um, meaning and, uh, yeah, thing, things, things that it could say to us. Um, yeah, it's yeah, it's pretty powerful. Um, Jacob, is there anything we haven't touched on today that you would like to talk about or you'd like to say? Um, no, I, I think like I think that's covered a lot of ground, and um, yeah, there's so much to say, but at the same time. Um, I think just at the moment, you know, with with recent sort of things that have happened, it's you know, a lot of people are just really burnt out. Um, you know, feeling really high emotion. So, I don't think we need to go too deep into anything else, like unless there's something you wanted to sort of touch on? Well, <laughs> um, I feel, I, I really feel that uh, that drain and all the energy that so many um, First Nations people put into campaigning for a voice to parliament and even if they didn't, you know, whatever views they had, there was a lot of, um, it would have taken, 
I think took a lot of energy from a lot of people. Um, and when we hear about, hear from you directly about the challenges and the difficulty and the energy that you already have to put into this incredibly important and worthwhile work, um, to think that something uh, imposed upon people such as yourself that takes more energy uh, and it, not even for a, a, the outcome that so many people were hoping for, I just find that really distressing. So, yeah, I don't know if sorry is a useful word, but uh, I feel really bad about it. No, like, I, you know, I, I think it, I'm, I'm hoping that it's a moment. I, I'm hoping it's, you know, I'm hoping that it's that moment that sort of catalyzes people. I you know, like, it kind of brings it all out and showcases it to the world. I guess like some of the difficulties First Nations people deal with on a daily sort of basis and you know like I'm I'm in a you know it I don't have to deal with the that constant kind of racial profiling because I I blend in more than others but you know you ask anybody who has darker skin and distinctive indigenous features what their daily life is like and they'll tell you you know they can't go anywhere without being followed by security guards being racially profiled everywhere they go and it just that's what they have to deal with every single day and I think it's shown the world that reality this result you know, and and you can see some places. They say it's not racially motivated, but when you look at some regions where only twenty percent percent less than twenty percent have voted yes, and then somewhere else sixty percent have voted yes. Or well, what's the difference? Why did forty percent decide that no was the right answer if it wasn't racially motivated? What do you know? And these are usually regional towns. It's like who voted no and then inner city suburbs voted yes it's like well are you in the country more enlightened than the person in the city do you know something that they don't that you voted no are you privy to some kind of secret conspiracy or is it just that it's more racist and I think you know I hope that kind of yeah, it makes people realise how difficult it can be for people who who are Indigenous in this country. You know, because they, they know, they have to live with that every day, but yeah, I think now the world knows. So I'm hoping this will be a moment to sort of catalyse some kind of change. And I think, like, it has to be led, you know, by... By the communities like I really think like that's why we need to start looking at that nation building work because if we're going to do something we're going to have to do it ourselves we're going to have to be able to set our own structures in place so that we can equitably negotiate 
with you know these government bodies or whatever to lead better outcomes and eventually through that nation building work you can then start to take control of those things so that you're not a fully serviced community anymore serviced by the government and private contractors you're delivering the services for you, for your community and that's kind of what the nation building work is about yeah that makes so much sense and i know you you were very much on this path um you know for for a while so um i think yeah there's a lot of a lot of listening um the, to be done and I, I hope you're right that this is a moment of, of change I, I, you know yeah and people are looking at or non-first nations people can look at um yeah what kind of reckoning can be done um yeah jacob i'm really grateful to your time and for putting the energy into this conversation um it's going to mean a lot to a lot of people, I think, and definitely so much, so much to think about. Um, all power to you with your with your work and um, and the nation building that I've got no doubt you'll you'll um, yeah forge forge ahead with. Um, yeah, thank you so much for chatting today. No, I appreciate that. I ho- hope it was worthwhile um, for everybody listening and 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 for yourself. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. It was life-changing, I reckon. But I thank, thank you so much. My pleasure. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.